there's some rate of apoptosis and necrosis. So you could argue that there's got to be some birth, but there are many people who say that no beta cells are born after age 20. That you get to age 20 and that's what you got. So, so we've been exploring that. Now here's some of the examples, and that is from Chris Rhodes, uh, that you get a tremendous amount of uh, replication, and the way that we look at replication is with the particle KS67, which uh, shows up when cells are in cell cycle. And so you get a great deal of growth in the neonatal period, more in childhood, and then when you get to late adolescence and, and adults, it's, it's almost gone. And notice the lines at the bottom, if this pointer will, yeah. Look at it, it looks like zero. So that's uh, interesting. And then if you look at the work by Peter Butler, <coughs> you see also, look at all the zeros. And that's, uh, that's pretty impressive. So you might, and there's some other data that says that beta cells really don't turn over. So we started studying human islets <coughs> that were transplanted into immunocompromised mice and uh, looking for regeneration because we were very interested in the potential for regeneration. And I show this partially because it's such a pretty picture, but uh, in any event, we, we had some startling findings because <coughs> we found that the <coughs> beta cells were actively replicating in the graphs. Not a huge amount, but we're talking sort of 0.4% were Ki67 positive, 0.55%. And then because we had an islet transplant program, we had a lot of cadaver pancreases. And we looked at those and there was no Ki67. And the poor fellow who was working on this was getting very depressed. He says, what is this nonsense? There's obviously some kind of artifact. Um, so uh, clearly the replication activity in the transplanted human beta cells was at least <coughs> tenfold higher than in the normal pancreas. So we have just recently published that. And so what we found is we ended up getting some frozen sections obtained at surgery. And lo and behold, they had some replication. And uh, as did the islets transplanted into mice. And we thought we found some evidence for gluconeogenesis, which has also been a <coughs> very controversial issue. But at least we found uh, what we think is a marker, which is double staining for insulin and cytokeratin, particularly when they're found in the pancreatic ducts, which is where we think they come from. Um, <coughs> and this is, we see this, all of you in your pancreases now have pancreatic ducts that have insulin-containing cells. The uh, rigorous people say, well, you don't know that those are going to be turning into new islets, you know, but you can't do lineage tracing in humans, so we're sort of stuck with tangential uh, evidence. <clears throat> but these papers keep emerging of people who are finding double staining for Ki67 and insulin in the pancreatic duct, the appearance of newly formed islets in the ducts, and uh, you know, more and more of these papers are, are, are uh, popping up. So <clears throat> it's funny to go back to 1911. <clears throat> Cecil was one of the great pathologists. And he said, naturally, I have seen, as, I've, as with autopsy material, I have naturally seen very few mitotic figures in either ducts or newly forming large islands, but that they occur in large numbers in freshly fixed tissue as described by Winchelbaum and Kyle, I do not doubt. Okay, well, that was an imaginative thing. 
So <clears throat> we thought that maybe the conditions of warm and cold ischemia would turn off Ki67 positivity and that there'd be artifactually less Ki67 and less tunnel singing. <clears throat> so we decided to do a really simple experiment. We decided to do post-mortem exams on mice. So <clears throat> we said, what happens when people die? Usually the family assembles and they're sitting in the room for three hours and then they're carted down and put it in a refrigerator. And that's what our cadaver donors source is. So we did the same thing with mice. We uh, <clears throat> killed the mice, let them sit at room temperature, and then put them in the icebox. So look what happens to Cas67 in beta cells. It plummets. And I was actually talking to a surgical pathologist. He said, oh, we knew that. <laughs> you know, from breast cancer stuff, if you don't have fresh tissue, you just don't have the replication that you do if it sits around. In other words, you, you have the replication early on, but you don't if you let the tissue sit around. So, so what does that mean? Well, if beta cells have 0.4% chaos 67 positivity, and if this lasts for 12 hours, and if there were no neogenesis, and if there were apoptosis, the beta cell mass in humans might just normally double in less than a year. But we can't go that far because the Cas67 positivity can be found in cells that do not divide. They get stuck in uh, arrested in cell cycle. And also there's a new evidence that sometimes when there's a high Cas67 positivity, there's also a lot of DNA damage and maybe apoptosis. So we don't know what the Cas67 positivity really means. But I think you'll be interested in this. This is these are people who have had diabetes for over 50 years. And they're part of George King's medalist study, where he's really accumulated some 600 people with uh, 50 years of uh, diabetes. And some of these people, not surprisingly, died. And we get their pancreases. And this is my <coughs> wife, Susan Bonner-Weir, who actually takes a look at these pancreases. She's had 34, and in every single one of them, they're beta cells. So, so the question is, after 50, 60, or 70 years of diabetes, you know, where are these beta cells coming from? And were they really there at age 10 and lasted that period of time? Um, you know, I suppose they could be, but it certainly would fit better if they uh, come. So, so I, I guess at this point, <coughs> we, can, we know a few things about beta cell mass and turnover in, in adults. But I think it's actually healthier to talk about the things we don't know because then we can figure out what uh, research to do. So I think that <clears throat> I'm convinced that there is a rate of beta cell replication in neogenesis that's slow, but we don't know how slow. Because if you look at any of these parameters, you can't model it very efficiently to say what's actually happening in terms of making new beta cells. We know that death occurs, we call it apoptosis, but it could perfectly well be necro necrosis. Uh, and <clears throat> that's really a slow process. And uh, but we don't know how slow. And beta cell mass is well maintained with only modest declines with age. Um, and <clears throat> I'll show you a few pictures of that. And but the thing that's so really intriguing to me is that the rates of beta cell birth and death must be very similar. And, and what are the mechanisms that control that balance? And this, this fellow of mine, 
Francisco Caballero, who was getting depressed. He said, why, why, why do you have 10,000 cells and, and only one of them seems to want to divide? I mean, how, what's the magic that makes that happen? I said, Francisco, you need to study that. So anyway, he went off and studied something else. <laughs> so let's turn to function. So we've been working with the hypothesis for a long time that the, there is a fall in beta cell mass in type 2 diabetes. Uh, and, and this really is germane to type 1 diabetes also when the beta cells get, uh, start getting hit. And then there's the phenomenon which we consider glucotoxicity. The diabetic milieu, at least, and that leads to a loss of beta cell phenotype, a change in phenotype, and you get a tremendous change in beta cell function. So, <clears throat> so I, I really like showing this slide because it was so carefully done in 1955 by these uh, people in Scotland. And uh, look what they found. The weight of beta cells um, is down. And they have a few type 1s in here. They weren't totally well characterized. But the beta cell mass is reduced by about 50%. He also measured the weight of the alpha cells, and there was no difference. Um, and of course, all this has been confirmed by lots of other studies by Peter Butler and, and Raye in Belgium and various other people. So, um, <clears throat> this is this guy Jacques Raye has done this incredible work with very detailed counting of beta cells in the pancreas. And notice that the dark lines at the bottom are type 2 diabetics, and they're a little bit beta cell mass is down about 50%, <clears throat> and the non diabetics. But notice how well-maintained the beta cell masses for decades, which, which really speaks to the uh, slow rate of uh, death. And is there more apoptosis? Peter Butler may have been, the group may have been one of the first to show it, but here's a more recent publication. And I, I think that even though there are big standard errors and, you know, that you can say, well, it looks like there is an increased apoptosis, but uh, it, it, it's pretty small differences. But the thing that amazes me <coughs> is, this is maybe my most important slide, from a study that was done in 1976 by the group of Dan Port. And that is, how screwed up does insulin secretion get? And they took people with different levels of hyperglycemia, starting with perfectly normal fasting sugars, and they did a simple test. They injected insulin into the vein and looked for first phase insulin secretion. And notice that when people have perfectly normal glucose levels in the fasting state between 80 and 90, that they have this lovely bang, you know, first phase insulin secretion. And then they go up to 90 to 99, and it's still pretty terrific. But look what happens when they get above 100 and don't even have a diagnosis of diabetes that it's half as much. They get up to 115, and they still don't have a diagnosis of diabetes, and it's gone completely. In fact, some people show that there's actually a decrease. Paul Robertson showed that many years ago. So, <clears throat> so you say, well, how on earth can they maintain fairly normal glucose? And the answer is because they can respond to other things. They can respond to acrogens, protein, and, uh, and so, for example, you take these same people who have no first phase insulin secretion, they respond perfectly well to arginine. They actually have second phase responses to glucose too. So if they eat something, they have all kinds of things that keep the insulin being, uh, being made and 
key people in the state of IGT, for example. So, <clears throat> so this is the hypothesis that we, we have been working on for a long time, and that is that beta cells expose to even mild chronic hyperglycemia. They like living within very narrow range, and uh, that they develop dysfunctional insulin secretion that's associated with altered gene and protein uh, expression. Uh, so, <clears throat> now, not to be unpleasant, but lipotoxicity, I, I, I'm not sure it exists. There's been this, it sort of rolls off the tongue nicely, lipotoxicity and glucolipotoxicity, and you hear it at most conferences that you go to. But all the data that support that is done in vitro, when you're adding free fatty acids to cells, and who knows what the real free fatty acid concentration is in the interstitial space surrounded by lipid membranes. And if you look for data and correlations in people, uh, when you find it, come see me, because I, I like to think I'm open-minded. But <clears throat> um, I haven't seen it yet. And uh, the, the smarter people with lipotoxicity sort of agreed, so they went into a fallback position. They said, well, you need high glucose, and then you bring it out. But that has the same problems because that's all done in vitro. So, um, <clears throat> so it's a. Anyway, I think I've been unpleasant enough, so I'll move on. <laughs> um, so, how bad is the glucotoxicity? Um, uh, how badly does it damage function? And this is really impressive. Uh, the beta cell mass in typical type two diabetic is reduced by about fifty percent. But if you if you look for maximum stimulation. It's only about 5%. <clears throat> so that's an enormous uh, reduction in function. And this, these are the data that I think are the best. Again, from Seattle, <clears throat> again, uh, many, many years ago. And, and this is, you just take normal people and you run up the glucose by infusing a whole lot, and then you stimulate with, in this case, arginine. It's been done by us with us for Terranol. And, and look what the people without diabetes do compared to the people with diabetes. That difference, that's 15% rather than 50%. And that is what we see in our patients. <clears throat> so we started studying this quite a while ago, and <clears throat> we had a model called the neonatal streptozotocin model. <clears throat> and so we took the position that, that we just thought it was a simple hypothesis that it was glucose, which was poisoning things. And indeed, with perfused pancreas and whatnot, we showed that the glucose-stimulated insulin secretion was totally wiped out in these uh, animals that had... Uh, sort of mild type 2 diabetes <clears throat> because they ended up uh, uh, being treated with streptococcus neonates. The people said, <clears throat> well, if you uh, treat with strep, we don't believe any of that. <clears throat> you know, strep does such strange things that uh, it is sort of not relevant. So we went to a surgical model, which we really like, <clears throat> surgical reduction of beta cell uh, mass. And it's turned out to be a terrific model for regeneration, and Susan's been studying this very carefully, and there's both neogenesis and uh, increased replication, uh, and it's, it's, uh, it's really impressive. But we wanted to see what happened a little bit later to uh, function. Uh, and then I might point out that, <coughs> that we also found this, this striking loss of glucose-stimulated insulin secretion and preservation of responses to arginine. And actually, there wasn't too much second phase insulin secretion either, but I've got an explanation for that, which I won't bore you with. So we, we did a lot of work with this model, 
And <clears throat> so I think one of the key experiments was to show whether it was reversible or not. Because you get, so what we did was we took islets after 14 days and did gene arrays. Gene, it wasn't gene arrays, they were gene expression. And then we treated the mice with fluorazine to bring the sugar down to normal. And then we had all the groups of sham surgery, and et cetera, et cetera. So what did we see? Well, this is just a few of the examples. <clears throat> One of the things, there what are now being called disallowed genes in, in uh, the beta cell, which means the normal beta cell shuts off the uh, expression of, of some, some of their key genes, like lactate dehydrogenase A, like uh, the monocarboxylic acid transporters. And uh, several, several people, Guy Rutter and uh, Franz Schoit, have been working on that. But we found in this model that LDH was up, and the other thing that was really high was CMYK, which we think actually is really important, but we never, we haven't, did some more experiments, but we didn't follow through. And then we'd end up seeing reductions in insulin, PDX, and NKX 6.1. And not to go through all this thing in torture detail, but, but if you, but if you look carefully at this, these ones, this is sham, vehicle, PX, and PPX. The PPX means that we get fluorazine. So look at how it, the fluorazine just comes back to normal. With the fluorazine group, the expression of CMYK comes back to near normal, as does LDH. And the depression of insulin, PDX, and NKX 6.1 comes right back. So, it's, so this is a sort of a reversibility thing. So, so, we, we, so what do we see? We saw key beta cell genes downregulated. If you look at the ones that are really important for beta cell function, some of them are downregulated. The suppressed genes are sometimes upregulated. And what I think is a whole other important chapter is the stress response in this situation is dramatically changed. And I think more people who are looking at type 1 diabetes should look at the beta cell as something that changes as a target for the immune system. So that a normal beta cell is a different target than a beta cell that's sitting at a glucose concentration of 150 and, or 100, 250 or 300. And uh, it, it's, it's, there've got to be differences in susceptibility. <clears throat> Actually, one of the interesting things we found was when we looked at the effects of streptozotocin, they actually were a little protected against streptozotocin, which was a big surprise. So what about in real life? <coughs> Bariatric surgery. This is a study <coughs> from uh, uh, Greece, which I think shows it very nicely. And they studied glucose-induced insulin secretion before surgery. And as you can see by the red arrows, it was uh, gone. And then they had people three months later, and look at, look, the first phase insulin secretion is really back to normal, in fact, higher than normal. Six months it's back, 12 months it's back, and the controls, of course, have good secretion. But the controls, actually, they had obese controls and they had lean controls, and the ones with the gastric bypass ended up being a little higher than the, control, the lean controls because they were still insulin resistant and overweight. So they came back exactly to where they should have come back. <coughs> so. This is a pet peeve of mine, and that is 
What do we know about the dynamics of <laughs> reversing glucotoxicity? We don't have hardly any idea whether it takes hours or days, and it's terribly important when we treat our patients because it's a moving target. You know, these type 2 diabetics, and you know, sometimes the blood sugar comes down to normal because they've been good with their diet and treatment and insulin treatment, and the beta cell function just keeps changing. So it's a nightmare trying to keep sense of that. So we don't know if it would take hours or days, but it'd be such a simple experiment to do. You just put people in a CRC and you bring down the sugar with insulin and you figure it out. So I find it, <coughs> I say odd, <coughs> that this clinically important, easy to answer question hasn't been addressed. It's not sexy enough. So maybe somebody will do something about this, please. Well, here's a curious phenomenon. <coughs> we had to, we, we were stuck on the <coughs> four week time point for our partial pancreatectomy experiments. <coughs> and uh, we knew that we needed to see what happened for a longer period of time, like about 14 weeks. So we did. So we did <coughs> sort of 90% partial pancreatectomies as opposed to 95% pancreatectomies. So it's sort of on the borderline. And lo and behold, <coughs> they broke into two separate groups. These are inbred strains of Sprague dolly mice or rats. And they sort of were sort of a mixture of things at two to four weeks. But look what happens at 14 weeks. You have some that are, have uh, what could be called impaired glucose tolerance. The gene expression in these beta cells has changed. Same pattern, but it's less severe. And then you have the very hyperglycemic ones. So <clears throat> people came up with all kinds of reasons. They must, the rats must be different, etc. So we looked at some of our transplant experiments. And <clears throat> this is, we've done a lot of work with encapsulation of islets. So, and that's an interesting subject in its own right. But then we just took all the data with a thousand islets, and we found that sometimes they worked and sometimes they didn't work. So we put the blood sugar in rank order. So on the right, you see the ones that failed, and the ones on the left, you see the ones that worked. And look at the hole in the middle. It's, um, so there's something that's pushing, you, you fail, and then whoosh, you go to a higher sugar. So we just pulled out more data from transplants, found the same thing. Then naked islets transplanted into the kidney under the kidney capsule without uh, encapsulation device, same thing. <clears throat> so we developed this idea that as people progress to type 2 diabetes, <clears throat> that they go through five stages. And we start life fit and thin, maybe not, <clears throat> maybe not all of us. And uh, move along in life and get a desk job, <clears throat> you decide to do science, uh, whatever it is we do, and, and then it gets a little more challenging because we then get some television and fast food and weight gain, and, and our, our fasting sugar then goes up, and some of it, sometimes it's uh, impaired glucose tolerance or thereabouts, and uh, <clears throat> then, you know, you're getting older and you decide to go on a cruise. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and that is uh, big trouble because <laughs> then you shoot up to, you know, what I would call stage three. And uh, there you are. So if you just get back to IGT, there's some stability with that. So I think it's a big deal that there's this, what I call push from uh, stage two to stage four. And what's going on? 
and the sugar is rising, and I think it ends up being sort of a vortex, not a polar vortex, but whatever vortex you want, uh, <clears throat> that because there's increased insulin resistance at the periphery, where, where I think lipids do count, I think there is a glucolipotoxicity on the periphery, and what I think is the dominating force is glucotoxicity on beta cells, it just spins up and then, because you still have a lot of beta cells, it doesn't go up to ketoacidosis or, you know. So that's a sort of simplified thing. So <clears throat> I was very relieved. People didn't sort of, nobody seemed to pay attention to that. <clears throat> but at any rate, some people in England did at the Whitehall study, and they looked at their population of patients with type 2 diabetes, and they said, let's see if there are the five stages. And they said, well, there are. There is this gush, that sudden increase in sugars that happen in the natural history. And we don't see it because we treat. So you totally miss it when you get high sugars and then you treat, and uh, or you're treating before. And so you, you have to use your imagination a little bit to see it. But if you look at your patients, I can almost guarantee you're going to see it. So <clears throat> beta cell heterogeneity is fascinating. Just think where we'd be with beta cell biology if we could identify cells at a different life part of their lifespan. And Mimo's done a lot of really important work with this. So we clearly have immature cells, we have mature cells, post-mitotic senescence, and premorbid. And there have got to be markers for all of those. So wouldn't it be amazing if you could just take fresh pancreas from surgery and uh, <coughs> characterize those? And then, <coughs> so where do these new cells come from? So you get embryonic ones, uh, postnatal meiogenesis, replication, transdifferentiation. So we, they may, we may have different types of new cells that all have a different phenotype. And do they all have the same lifespan? And how many beta cells are born in a lifetime? We used up the capacity. In other words, if you really, one of the fascinating things is that in impaired glucose tolerance, the beta cell mass is down about 40%. So what happens during obesity? I say I am talking about obesity. Uh, are the beta cells worn out? Have they expended some capacity that they had for regeneration? And is there some way to restore this capacity? So I'd like to make a particular point <clears throat> about homogeneity and heterogeneity. So with regard to insulin secretion in diabetes, the beta cells secrete less insulin per unit of beta cell mass. And this is a homogeneous process because there's no response. There could be a couple of beta cells that are responding, but can't be many because it's just totally wiped out. In fact, there's a decrease in function. And yet, with things like beta cell death, <coughs> that's got to be heterogeneous. And I think there's some good pieces of evidence in the literature. So. It may be that a lot of cells are stressed towards being pushed towards death with the unfolded protein response or something like that, but only a small number of them actually proceed to die. And uh, so, so that is something that happens with a real minority of cells. And so why is it homogeneous? And the answer is just this, which is what I was just telling you about. So none of the cells respond. Uh, and uh, so I, I guess I really said about all of this. It's uh, moving faster than I expected. So the, you all know about this. <laughs> this is Mimo's study. And so it's a really new concept that's, that's really got everybody thinking, which is a, a big contribution to the field. 
and saying that dedifferentiation can occur and cells go to uh, some some cell with a stem characteristics and then maybe these cells have potential for regen regeneration. Um, <clears throat> and it's worth looking at uh, where beta cells come from. And uh, <clears throat> so we, we know that they're, they come from fetal cord-like structures. They like to call them cords rather than ducts, but some people call them ducts, but they're sort of the same thing. And then there's been this huge argument about <clears throat> postnatal duct uh, multipotent uh, precursors. And my wife has been working very hard on that. And a lot of people say she's nuts, but she'll win. <laughs> she's right. Um, it's very complicated because the lineage tracing experiments are so, they're very useful, but they're very complicated. And sometimes the issue is where the Cree is really working, what cell type it's working in, etc. But neurogenin 3 is really interesting because all the cells that are myelin cells have to go through that stage. So, so they, they, it, it, it wouldn't be, because they came through the same pathway, it wouldn't be surprising if there might be plasticity so that you could get alpha cells turning into beta cells and delta cells turning into whatever. And um, so when we have this dedifferentiation, as Mimo's shown and other people are showing, you, in mouse models you get neurogenin 3 lighting up. Um, and then the question is whether you go back further, and uh, this is <coughs> sort of one way of looking at it. And I think what, what's on the table <coughs> for people to sort out, and I guess it probably will be sorted out in a very short period of time, I assume so. And, and, and so you have Mimo's uh, hypothesis <coughs> that you have a mature beta cell, and then you have, I don't think you've gotten around to calling it glucotoxicity or be more cautious than that, which is probably a wise thing to do. Something about the diabetic state uh, causes this uh, reversible dedifferentiation and that you could go back to a multipotent. You know, it wouldn't be amazing if it was a pluripotent potential, but at least multipotent. And then the question is, on the top side, you say, well, you, you've got dedifferentiation, and, and let's be careful about the term dedifferentiation, because we really have a change in phenotype. And even when we were publishing our papers back then, we had quite some real discussion about whether we should use dedifferentiation. And remember that there's normal changes of differentiation in that, for a normal beta cell, so an immature beta cell, an old beta cell, they all have different if you did arrays on those particular cells, they'd be different. So they have different uh, sort of gene array characteristics, and you could call that dedifferentiation because they're not as differentiated as a perfectly normal beta cell, whatever a perfectly normal beta cell might be. So we can use the terms, but we need to define them carefully, I think. And so the, <laughs> the critical question is, is uh, what are these empty cells? Now, we pulled out, <coughs> Susie was involved in an experiment with monkeys uh, quite some years ago with a group in Seattle. And she holds on to every section she's ever been presented with. We have a huge storehouse of things. And uh, so, anyway, these baboons were treated with streptozotocin, which again raises questions about what streptozotocin is doing. And uh, so she pulled out the blocks <coughs> and looked at the cells with insulin staining and then a cocktail that included all of the other hormones 
<laughs> which means glucagon, somatostatin, pancreatic polypeptide. And we couldn't find any empty cells in these monkeys that had... Now, one of the things about these monkeys, they clearly had diabetes at the time they were sacrificed. But was the sugar maybe not high enough to make the cells empty? Because degranulation is really a big deal. You get profound degranulation. We found that with some of our earlier models, when you, particularly when you give dexamethasone, and, and, and you can do the same thing with telbutamide, there are a number of maneuvers you can do to bring the beta cell insulin content down to less than 5% of normal. Uh, <clears throat> so it may be that had we had higher sugars in these monkeys that uh, or baboons, that, that would have worked. Uh, <clears throat> so let me move to the last topic, which is <clears throat> the conversion of alpha cells to beta cells. And I think this was really put on the map by uh, the group of Pedro Herrera <clears throat> really uh, not so long ago, in 2010. And this really got people excited. And the people, JDF, said, well, we're going to exploit this because there must be a way to get more beta cells from alpha cells. And so he did lineage tracing. And, uh, you know, I, I can't find any holes in the data. Uh, but, but I think the question is, how, how many beta cells might you be able to make through this pathway? We've tried. Uh, we have a paper that we published uh, earlier this year, or whatever it was. Yeah, December, um, <coughs> where we did pancreatic duct ligation. And this is, this is so Susan, she, she's my wife, uh, Susan Bonnerweir. Anyway, so she's done pancreatic duct ligation in mice and, and, and really got some pretty good evidence for postnatal neogenesis. So I, so I said, Susie, let's, let's do a rat and let's put uh, transplant islets into the rat, really study this carefully and see if we can show some neogenesis. Well, we had this wonderful postdoc, Claudia Cavelti-Vader, and uh, we found no evidence for regeneration, or for, post, for any regeneration. We, we took special trouble to the, the people who, Pedro, I talked to Pedro Herrera, he said, well, the reason why strep doesn't work is because you don't get as many beta cells wiped out. You need to totally clean it out with diphtheria toxin. Well, we, uh, you know, f fasted the rats, but the rats <laughs> gave big doses, and the beta cell mass went down to 2-ish percent, 1.5% of normal. And we followed these animals for quite a while, and we never saw any evidence of new beta cells, the increase in beta cell mass, change of alpha, alpha to beta cell ratio. So it just doesn't seem to happen in this model. So, but again, we say, well, maybe Streptozotocin did something. So we looked, and then <clears throat> I just decided to put this down, the mouse experiment. So we did this experiment because Larry Chan at that point was saying if you have diabetes, you somehow start making insulin in the liver. And so we, we weren't sure about that, so we just cured some animals with uh, islet transplants. And then we, I forgot to put the liver up there because it has absolutely no insulin content. Um, so that, it, it, at least with measuring insulin by extracting the liver, there wasn't any to, to really. But the, uh, the kidney graft had some, and the, the, the pancreas from the cured animals actually had, this is, I sort of had debated showing you this because there was so little insulin in the kidney graft, and it wasn't a complete cure, so maybe there's some degranulation, and maybe there's 
little more. So I don't think this is a definitive experiment, but it is interesting that in the hyperglycemic animals, that they had 158 nanograms of insulin total compared to a normal mouse pancreas, which is 31,000 nanograms. So at the very least, it just gives you an example of what you can do by a reduction based on mass and degranulation. <clears throat> so, so what about alpha cell mass <clears throat> in type 2 diabetes? According to RIA, it's unchanged. But notice what's on the left. That is um, the ratio of alpha cells to beta cells. And that's different because there's a reduction in beta cell mass. So that fits perfectly. But notice the uh, alpha cells. There's no difference. And that's what McLean and Ogilvy reported in 1955. So they say, well, type 1 diabetes is different, but it's actually not. And there are enough studies by Anne-Marie Carpenter and rodents and by Lele Orchi and, and, uh, and humans that tell us maybe we need more data, but the, the sort of sense from the data I've seen is that there is a relative difference in alpha cell mass. And this is a very important point because total mass and relative mass are different. Because relative mass is kind of a, a, a ratio. So you do a ratio of beta cells to alpha cells. And that changes dramatically. And some of them say, oh, there, there's sort of increase in alpha cells. But they're actually not. So, so what I've done, God, I would have put so many more slides in. It's like, oh, that's going to be this efficient. But maybe there's some good time for question. So we talked about these three topics. And uh, uh, as usual, we have, this is only a partial list of, of uh, people who've uh, sort of helped me with this for many years. And we've had endless conversations about these uh, interesting topics. So that's the end of my talk. Thank you. Take any questions? Yes. Okay. Nemo. So, that was fabulous. A great overview of you know many uh, many years of very interesting work. I'm wondering if you can comment on the issue of so we agree that you can recover some beta cell function by treating people by lowering glycemia. Mm -hmm. Uh, how long do you think that's true for after one has had diabetes for a number of years? <clears throat> My bet, mm -hmm. because it's only a bet, right. and, uh, is that even with long-standing diabetes, you can recover it by reestablishing normal glycemia. The experiment needs to be done. But I think because these beta cells, and again, do they live a year? Do they live two years? And there's a fat, you know, so, and they get old and they accumulate lipofuxin, and there's a very interesting study in that regard. And, and people say, well, after all those years, they've got to be, you know, not very good. We need the experiment done. But my bet is that there's going to be substantial recovery. And I base that on the bariatric surgery data. Because these some of these patients are 50, 40, you know, they've been around. They've got to have a lot of old cells. And that particular study from Greece showed just complete return. So are there new beta cells? Are they the same population? I don't think they're a different population. I think they're the same one. So that's that's my long-winded answer. Okay. Yes? So I guess off the bariatric surgery question, because I think that's also rather compelling argument about that, but it seems that the glucose homeostasis uh, resolves very quickly. So do you imagine there's a two-step process for something that's 
being the cell independent is improving, the glucose within people have reported days or a very short time, and then you have time for the endogenous cells to recover? I mean, how do you sort of envision that? Well, I, I think there's so many complicated things going on after bariatric surgery and <coughs> the differences between gastric banding and ruin Y and whatnot. So with all the incretins and mechanisms that we still don't understand how they work. <coughs> but I love simplicity. And so I just want to sort of take, let's just, let's just focus on what cha happens when the glucose changes and then try to build on top of that. So that's why I really want to see somebody doing experiments in type 2 diabetics where they put them in a CRC, reduce the glucose to normal, and just document how fast does it come back. There, are, there was an experiment done in Paris by Philip Fogg 100 years ago where he infused insulin overnight and got some return of beta cell function. Jerry Oleski did some work, but none of these were done well enough to give us the real answer. Yes? Do you know what happens to the alpha-beta cell ratio after chronic GLP analog therapy or after gastric bypass surgery? I don't know who's studied that. Oh, well, oh yeah, Peter Butler has studied some of these things in a paper in diabetes. and I think most of the things that he's were reported in that paper recently about the GLP-1 is are incorrect. <laughs> and Susan and I have published a paper just recently where I'm afraid we're in a little trouble with Peter because we pointed out the flaws in this study. It's in diabetes, obesity, and metabolism having been turned down by diabetes. Um, so at any rate, they're, they're, look at our paper. It's really Susan. I can blame Susan. If Peter gets mad at me, I say, well, it's all Susan's idea. So at any rate, that's little advertisement for this paper that's now online. Yes. Isn't the Yes. <clears throat> the issue is in type 1 diabetes, when you have all these cytokines, do they enhance the replication? And I don't know, but um, the experiments were done, again, with Susan and Terry Strom with alpha-1 antitrypsin, <clears throat> which is pretty impressive in that you can take an NOD mice, mouse, wait till they get diabetes. If you, if you prevent diabetes in an NOD mouse, no one's impressed. But if you let the animal get diabetes and then you reverse it, people pay attention. So, uh, so they treated with alpha-1 antitrypsin and reversed the diabetes and restored tolerance. And pertinently, Susan measured the beta cell mass and it really increased a lot. It was very deficient, uh, around 20%. And then as the, the diabetes was reversed, it climbed back up to something like 70% of normal. And so did cytokines have anything to do with that? Again, I fall back on simple-minded I start with glucose in the beta cell, and then we move from there. So we need better experiments, because there are various people who are sort of looking into this business of other things that affect 
uh, replication. The cytokines could be involved. Gordon, thank you very much.